So I want to begin with a special service announcement about Valentine's Day because uh, I happen to be reading this New York Times op-ed piece this morning by an economist who studies big data and small data uh, talking about when people discover what their favorite songs are. And uh, the, I'll tell you the long and the short of it is that women tend to discover their favorite song at around the age of 13, and men discover their favorite song around the age of 14, because as we know, men mature much more slowly than women. 14 is actually quite young. I would say 64, you know, maybe. Uh, anyway, so this uh, economist, uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz, uh, said that by this data, he can actually determine the, that what special song people will play on Valentine's Day, depending on their age level, uh, based on this age difference. And so, um, so I was thinking that after you bring your loved one to be ashed together, got to be really articulate on that word, uh, this Wednesday at the Ash Wednesday service, you'll want to know what song you're supposed to play when you get home or wherever you're heading after that. So here's what he says. He actually said this data gives me the ability to predict what will happen this Wednesday on Valentine's Day. So his sophisticated analysis, he says, tells me to expect this. 30-year-olds will celebrate to Beyonce's Crazy in Love, 45-year-olds with Van Halen's When It's Love, based, remember, on their 13 and 14, and 60-year-olds with Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. <laughs> now, yeah, I was thrilled about the 60s one, you know, that Let's Get It On is kind of a hopeful thing. And so, um, but what's, what's missing here are age 50s, and I, I was kind of thinking to myself, well, of course that's why, because Don McLean got it wrong with about when the music died. It wasn't when Buddy Holly died. It was when the Beatles broke up. I mean, let's face it. Because, like, disco? Really? Come on. So send your nasty emails to Paula Russell at info at <laughs> about that, all you disco lovers. Um, so I've also been reading other mysterious things, and one of those that crossed uh, my desk was, or my computer actually, was uh, this one, that are you aware that UFO sightings are on the rise today? I was not, and uh, you know, go figure what that's about, but studies of reports from various news outlets across the spectrum show that the number of stories about UFO sightings, the interviews with people who have seen them, are going way up. And for any one of you, by the way, who hasn't used important hours of your life watching the X-Files, uh, UFOs are, of course, unidentified flying objects. So I was a bit stunned by this. Uh, and it got my full attention when I actually read it in a respected organizational uh, blog that comes from the Center for Religion and Civic Culture at the University of Southern California, respected sociologist of religion, and it was in their list of five trends to watch in religion in 2018, which they suggest will be a liminal year in religion, meaning that we're on the threshold of some enormous changes. But here's what their first one is, and their number one trend, reported UFO sightings on the rise. Now, that got my attention right away, and I thought, what the heck is that about? What's that got to do with anything? But then I read one of my favorite bloggers, a guy named Marty Kaplan, and he put it all in perspective for me because at the this, this same week, he wrote a blog about um, seeing a UFO on video. And um, it turns out that Marty is a big UFO fan. I didn't know that. And just a couple of months ago, the Pentagon, remember that, released a video that was taken in 2004, but they just released it like in December, uh, of 
a film taking showing a UFO. And here's what it said, uh, the description by the uh, persons who saw it. A whitish oval-shaped aircraft flying on an unearthly trajectory at amazing speeds. Now, these were not seen by crackpots. These were, that was a report of two Navy fighter pilots who saw this and took the video. So I think you can probably see that on YouTube yourselves, by the way. The thing is, um, as Marty Kaplan saw this Department of Defense video, his only response was this, oh my God, like it really confirmed for him all of this thing that he had always believed. And that seems to be the point of the increased UFO phenomenon. It's the same impulse that empowers the religious drive, the search for some deeper meaning and purpose in a world that seems increasingly chaotic. And that's the point of this UFO sightings on the rise for this first trend of religion in 2018. So it seems that whether people consider themselves liberal or conservative, and particularly among the non-religious, by the way, there is this renewed experiencing of UFO sightings. Here's what a professor of religious studies at Rice University uh, says about this. To explain it, he says, this is a, about a massive deconstruction of our religious histories, that when the old certainties begin to crumble, the supernatural erupts more and more into the everyday. And that seems to be our time now, as the old religious histories and the old certainties are crumbling and the world feels more chaotic to maybe everyone. So the sociologists actually expect more stories about supernatural, paranormal, and the mysterious as people seek to find meaning in these chaotic times. So <clears throat> this is the Sunday of the Transfiguration, as you probably figured out by the gospel reading that Paul had just read, uh, if not by the word transfiguration in your bulletin. And although you expect it's about the transfiguration of Jesus, because indeed in the story he becomes dazzlingly white, probably blindingly light, showing his true nature as a being of light. But you don't want to read this more closely. That's not the most important aspect of the transfiguration. There are at least two misnomers about the text that give a new understanding of what's happening in this story, I think. And one is obvious when you reread it. Uh, the other one scholars have noticed in the more recent history of biblical scholarship. The obvious one, and really the most important one for today, the most important point to take home is this, that this is not really an experience that Jesus is having, although, not to say he might not have had this experience in his lifetime, but rather the more important understanding of the text, certainly more importantly for those of us who are followers of the Jesus way, is that this is an experience the disciples are having. In fact, it may well be an oral tradition handed down about an actual group mystical experience sometime following the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're having an actual mystical experience here, and it's reported, an experience of transcendence. And you can even say that these three disciples are each having their own individual experience of transfiguration because really, most likely, this is an event that's taking place inside of them, though the appearance is outside of them. Their souls are being transformed. They are the ones being transfigured in this experience. And I think this becomes even more clear when the scholarly application is given. I've already alluded to it, really, that actually scholars believe this is a post-resurrection experience the disciples had, 
that Mark, in his careful editing of the text, has placed into a story about Jesus' earthly life in order to explain more fully who Jesus really was and about Jesus' lineage as a Jewish mystic prophet. So that's why Moses and Elijah show up. It isn't to show that Jesus is better than them. It's to show that Jesus follows in that Jewish tradition. Scholars even point to this strange verse included in, uh, in the text, verse 9, as evidence that this is a post-resurrection appearance. I mean, I think Mark, uh, as a brilliant playwriter, storyteller, um, who has created this story out of some reality, but for his people, his community in 70 uh, of the common era, it is that he says, has Jesus say at the end, now don't tell anyone about this experience until after my resurrection. So it's a, as though Jesus could predict that, by the way. It's a very clever way to explain why no one ever heard about this experience during Jesus' lifetime. It's that it happened afterwards. But regardless of how you read that story in that way or just read it as an experience Jesus had and the disciples were there, the important point for us is that this is a mystical experience of the disciples. They are the ones being transfigured. They are experiencing their oneness with the divine in the light of their Jesus experience and out of their own Jewish heritage. And if that's true for those disciples, then it's true for these disciples. This is a spiritual sensitivity that we and all human beings actually possess to recognize the spiritual reality that is right next to our normal waking or what I call the consensual reality. That's a reality that actually is a bunch of ego selves. Uh, we've gathered together in a collective to kind of navigate our way through life. And it's very important to have this kind of consensual reality um, and important to live that way. But it also tends to blur our real reality of not being separate individuals or selves, but being connected with all that is. That's what these disciples are experiencing in this transfiguration experience, their oneness with all creation, with all being, with the divine through that. So that we have that spiritual sensitivity. It's why I think that even if it's only a fleeting, a kind of unconscious recognition that anyone ever gathers in a church or synagogue or mosque or ashram, um, it's just this longing to recognize the something more to life. And as I said earlier, that's even how psychologists explain the increased interest in UFOs, that in a chaotic world, this is a way to pursue meaning in life, even if it's only recognizing that there are higher-powered aliens out there. Often the questions our modern minds uh, pose about stories like these is totally misguided, we, ask, we tend to ask from our scientific point of view, did this really happen? But that's the wrong question. If we ask, did the followers of Jesus experience this, we're on the right track because this is an experience that anyone who follows the Jesus way might indeed have, even today. Now here I want to point out that when I use the word mystical, this is not something mysterious or paranormal or supernatural uh, or just plain woo-woo, something that nobody experiences. If anything, mysticism means to experience the extraordinary in the ordinary, like watching a sunrise or a sunset, or taking a walk in nature. 
experiencing an intimate moment with someone you love and losing that normal sense of self in that oneness. Brother David Stendhal Rast says it most simply, everyone, he says, is called to be a mystic. The mystic is not a special human being. Rather, a human being is a special kind of mystic. So let me read that again. The mystic is not a special human being. A human being is a special kind of mystic. So I think of the animal world who are natural mystics in a way because they haven't had the blessing or the curse of consciousness to be able to recognize their separation from everything else in all creation. We have that blessing and that curse, and so that also gives us the possibility to be mystics as human beings, to experience the oneness that is our true reality. So back in 1975, this was actually the year I started seminary, 42 years ago, the New York Times Magazine ran an article entitled, Are We Becoming a Nation of Mystics? So this was in 1975 from this respected journal, the New York Times, and here's an account of one of those transcendent experiences reported in that story, sounding very reminiscent of the transfiguration. This person uh, said, there was just this familiar room I was in, but suddenly it was filled by a presence, which in a strange way was both about me and within me, like light or warmth. I was overwhelmingly possessed by someone who was not myself, and yet I felt I was more myself than I had ever been before. I was filled with an intense happiness and an almost unbearable joy such as I had never known before and maybe have never known since. And over it all was a deep sense of peace and security and certainty. It's in those moments that I hope we all have had or will have. When you think to yourself in the midst of some ineffable experience, you know, if I died right now, it all would have been worth it. And then you keep on living. Which is why I think one of the reasons that Peter wanted to build booths to commemorate this sacred experience that he and James and John were having so if you think 1975 was all that long ago and it doesn't count now, <laughs> I have other statistics for you. A 2008 survey of youth around the world, 7,000 young people in 17 different countries found that 75% of those young people believe in a higher power. This is across the world, even in places where church is pretty much non-existent anymore. And a majority say that they have had a transcendent experience and they have come to believe that all living things are connected. That's young people 10 years ago. Those are now what we consider our supposedly hopeless millennials, by the way, now, <laughs> is that they do have a rich spiritual experience that we can share, actually. And even us adults are kind of catching on to that. So in a 1962 survey of uh, the adult population in the United States, 22% of adults reported having a profound experience of communion with the universe. That's how the, the wording was titled. By 2009, that percentage had more than doubled to 49% of Americans saying that they had a profound experience of communion with the universe. And one of my favorite statistics comes out of the recent Pew Research um, that asked this question, seldom, seldom uh, reported question, how often, if at all, do you feel a deep connection with nature and the earth? And across the board in the United States, like it didn't matter what religion you were in, Christianity or Muslim or Jewish, it could be atheist, it could be agnostic, it could be any form of denominational Christian that you have, 60% um, of adults 
said that they often feel a deep connection with nature. And if you add those who said that they sometimes feel this deep connection, that percentage rises to about 85% of Americans. Virtually everyone experiences a deep connection with nature. Those are mystical experiences, experiences that are both more ordinary and more extraordinary than our minds could have ever imagined or made up. So again, that great thinker David Stendhal Rast, again, defines it most purely, I think. Mysticism, he says, is the experience of limitless belonging. Limitless belonging. That was a close second for my sermon title this morning because that's our birthright as human beings, to be beings of limitless belonging. So here's the final point. The disciples share this experience as a group. Peter, James, and John, and in my imagination, and I actually think in reality, because she was one of the major leaders of the early Jesus movement, Mary Magdalene and probably other female disciples are there as well. What happens there is that the mutual support of the disciples in their discipline, their spiritual practice, that in fact allows them to be open to this experience of transcendence, to recognize the same presence in themselves that was in Jesus and in Moses and in Elijah. That's what's really happening here within the disciples themselves. So we need each other on this journey because we are all the beloved sons and daughters of the divine. We need our support, mutual support, and our mutual encouragement. We provide trusting space where we can each one be as real as we can possibly be in order to release the blocks that keep us from the recognition of our true nature as sons and daughters of light. Because that true nature is the most real thing in the universe. The divine is the essence of all creation. And what's keeping us from that realization are all the filters that have arisen naturally as part of our maturation as humans. It's a part of our natural ego development to begin to be cut off from our essential nature. It's a normal, necessary process as we grow and develop. And we also then are pushed further away by family and societal commands and demands and the beliefs and self-images that we layer on top of those uh, that skew our understanding of who and what we really are. We need trusted spaces where we can begin to unpack all of that and to experience what's truly underneath that, what's underneath all of the holes in our lives, which is this divine, essential strength and power and compassion and peace and joy and love. So our task then is to be transfigured from self-serving separateness to world-serving, intimate relationship with self, others, the natural world, and the entire universe. That's actually how we experience ourselves as beings of the divine, or as I like to say, as humans of being. The important futurist Dwayne Elgin says that the most urgent challenge facing humanity is not climate change or species extinction or unsustainable population growth. Rather, because this affects all of those, by the way, it is how we understand the universe and our intimate relationship with it. And we have a good start with that deep connection with nature. And when we have those direct experiences of connecting with the aliveness in nature and the world around us, and with each other too, by the way, then it's natural to care for those countless expressions of aliveness that fill the earth. The universe actually needs us. That's the surprising thing. 
Like, how did the Apostle Paul know to say this in a letter to the Roman Jesus community in 64 of the Common Era? He said, the whole creation is groaning in labor pains. The universe is waiting with eager longing for the revealing, for the birthing of the sons and daughters of God. The creation needs human beings who are fully alive to their true nature, to value the aliveness of the entire created order. This is the transfiguration we are being called to participate in. If Jesus were among us today, I think in in addition to saying, follow me, he might say, go transfigure yourselves. We in the church especially should be about creating safe, sacred spaces where people can trust enough to open their vulnerable and wounded hearts and experience what Father Gregory Boyle calls our exquisite mutuality. So I like the advice of comedian Lily Tomlin who said, remember, we are all in this alone. (laughs) Yeah, I thought I'd let that sink in even longer a minute here. Father Boyle maintains that, the, that it is his unshakable belief that we belong to each other is the reason that he can go to the margins to be with the most, some of the most outcasts of our society, the gang members in Los Angeles that he works with in Homeboy Industries. And Brene Brown says that this inextricable linkage we have with every other human being can also allow us, this is the other side of Lily Tomlin's paradox here, that linkage we have with every other human being can allow us to stand alone when necessary. Houston Smith once said that these experiences of transfiguration are important, but they are way stations to opening more fully to being lived expressions of the divine, which is the negative side of the building of the booze, to reify these experiences, but rather to hold them sacred and then to be open to more experiences like that so that we begin to build our capacity to maintain the deep uh, well that needs to be our capacity to hold the experience of the divine presence. And more and more as we have these experiences, it gives us the trust that the universe is a loving place that we can allow ourselves to rest into and experience our true nature as these children of the divine. That's a powerful thing. I think it's why the Bible talks about the fear of God often. It's the awesomeness of this divine presence that is our birthright as humans of being. So Houston Smith said this, might we begin, he asked, to transform our passing illuminations into abiding light. That's the building of capacity become abiding lights, to become, as Bruce Chilton calls followers of the Jesus way, vessels of divine light. And we need to have those kind of experiences and to cultivate them, which is why we need each other. We need groups that support us in our holy solitude with loving, trusting, similar others in which you know that you are not ultimately alone. And so we can continue to be vessels of divine light to the world. Walter Brigham says that God's hopes are to be performed through human agency, which is why Gandhi could say, be the change you want to see in the world. Or as Krishnamurti says in this quote in our bulletin this morning, what you are, the world is. And without your transformation, there can be no transformation of the world. Or another great mystic, Joan Chittister, don't set out to change the world, she says, set out to change yourself. 
This is what the transfiguration indicates. And the entire trajectory of the Jesus story, go and do likewise. Be transfigured as I am transfigured. Tap into the divine presence that is your true nature, your truest self, your real self. And in the trinity that John Shelby Spong always describes of this Jesus way, live fully, love wastefully, and be all that you can be. Go transfigure. Amen.